Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. Hello there. It's Linda and Richard uh, on the road again. And uh, we're actually about to take off a long way on the road. On Saturday morning, we're taking off for D.C. and then Poland, Germany, and England. So we're going a long way on the road through the air. But it's all about families at every stop, and we'll be speaking to parents in various countries, and we'll we'll call in from those countries and do the next couple of shows from a long distance away. And I'll bet you will end up saying, Linda, that uh, you know what? Parents in Germany are the same as parents in America, and parents in Poland are the same as parents in America. When it comes to what they're really hoping for for their kids, they're all hoping to essentially raise responsible kids in a fairly irresponsible world. (laughs) And absolutely true. You know, though, let's um, stay home for a few minutes uh, today and just talk about uh, the real world where we are. Uh, We have a family that's just come from Mesa, Arizona to ski. Uh, we're up in one of our children, not one of just our a family, our daughter and her husband, and their five rambunctious children. And they are delightful. And we are having so much fun with them. But just before they left, they had a huge crisis with their oldest son, who is 14 and a half, and who didn't do as well as he should have on his midterms. <laughs> And they were pretty upset about it because they thought he was rolling right along. You know, these 14-year-olds and 13, all the way kind of through teenagers. Especially the younger teenagers. Yeah. Well, they all have their issues no matter what age teenagers they are. But just figuring it out um, at that age is so tough because their brains have not matured enough to really, even though they know they should be doing something, it just doesn't internalize that this is how you do it. Are you saying, Linda, that willpower is the last part of the brain to develop? (laughs) I'm not sure about that. I do know that two-year-olds have no willpower. I am certain of that. Um, You tell them, no, 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 a thousand times, and they'll go right back and do it. And it's because they haven't developed their skills yeah, according to their willpower. They just don't have the willpower to make themselves stop. And I, and I think that does continue on. Uh, maybe it, it, it's greatest at 2 and then again at 14. What do you think? Well, they get a little willpower when they're, you know, they're around 7 or 8 or 9, and they're actually quite responsible. They're quite... Uh, yeah, they Quite are. Quite a wonderful thing. We talked on the show about that wonderful window called the age of accountability where kids really get stuff and yet they're not cynical yet. They're not sarcastic yet. They're quite wonderful. But then this difficult time of early adolescence or sort of mid-adolescence, I guess, really, 13, 14, that's the time in, in our little case study of our daughter and our son-in-law almost deciding to cancel the ski trip or at least to figure out some way to leave this young man at home because his midterms popped up just before they were going to leave, and they weren't as good as everyone had hoped. And and this kid's a good student. He's usually right on top of things. And so what's interesting, and we're not being critical, certainly not of our own daughter, but their first impulse, like that of a lot of parents, was what can we do to get his attention? What can we take away from him 
that will penalize him and make him realize that there are consequences when you don't do your best in school. And, you know, wow, that just took us right back to the years when we had five teenagers in our house uh, for several years, actually. We just got rid of one, and then another one came up. And uh, it is hard, a hard time of life. And to figure out how to um, motivate kids at that age to do what you know they have the potential to do, but they aren't quite doing it, is a huge dilemma. And, you know, what we came up with, I mean, we gave them some suggestions and so on, which they asked for. However, Richard would do that if they'd ask or not, I have to say. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) That's a topic for another time, but uh, uh, I've worked pretty hard on curbing my tongue and not giving too much advice unless it's asked for, but in well, this case, it you have, asked but for, I, which was pretty good. Our listeners should probably know that, though, when our kids started leaving home and being independent on their own, um, Richard did have a really hard time not giving advice, and the kids were a bit resentful and so on. So we had a family meeting at a family reunion uh, right at the first there, and we decided actually you decided, I think, honey, um, that you were going to give advice because you couldn't help yourself, couldn't help yourself. But at the same time, you would not be offended if they did not take your advice. Well, and the way I approached it, I thought I thought I would kind of won them over with my honesty and my candor because I said, look, you know, kids, I've got... I've got this problem. I've got this weakness. I've got this character flaw. I just, I, you know, I, I apologize for it. It's just part of me, and I, I just don't know what to do about it. And it is, in a nutshell, I cannot help myself from giving advice. And if I try, if I try to stifle that, who knows? I, you know, I might, it might kill me. You know, and I, I was pretty dramatic about it, and. And so out of that came the idea, okay, Dad, just pop off with all the advice you want. Just let it run right out of your mouth. But but make us a pledge, Dad, that if we say thank you very much, that's a wonderful input into my decision. I may or may not follow that advice. We'll have to see. Just promise us you won't be offended if that's our response to your advice. And I said, hey, gladly, if you'll promise me that you won't be offended by me offering it. I'll promise you that I won't be offended if you don't follow it. And that's worked pretty well since then, Linda. In fact, I've actually sort of managed to muzzle or bridle my tendency to want to give advice all the time. And I think everyone, most of all our kids, is appreciating that. (laughs) I think they are. And, you know, this is getting a bit away from our story, which we'll get back to before the break. But I have to say that both of us, one of our kids who lived in California, were going to buy a house in kind of a rundown neighborhood, and it was an old beat-up house, and the windows were horrible. They did have wood floors, but it was, oh, what was it, 900 square feet? Well, it was I don't know. built in the 40s. It was teeny. a little bungalow. It was yeah. Oh, my gosh, they wanted $350,000 for it, and we just said, oh, my gosh, please don't buy that house. It's just going to be... A disaster. You have no idea what you have ahead of you and all that. Well, to make a long story short, they bought the house. And they lived in it five years, fixed it up, and sold it for seven twenty-five. 
And so we you can were almost so, tell what year. You can almost guess what year yeah, those things were. Exactly by the right at the wouldn't, top. Wouldn't happen today. Well, and it's probably worth three fifty again now. But they just made the best decision to buy that house. So we're grateful that our kids don't always listen to our advice, especially in that case. That's kind of set them up for the rest of their lives. But now back to the much harder yes. issue of giving advice to your kids on their parenting. Now, if you're a grandparent listening to this, you totally identify. If you're a younger parent, you still probably identify because you have to deal with your parents who who may be looking down their nose at you like, don't you know how to discipline that child or whatever? And that's where the real danger comes is trying to be too intrusive and... uh, in fact, let's stay on this for a minute or two, Linda, because this is a big issue between parents and grandparents. And then, but, but we will promise you, listeners, that after the break, which will take in about five minutes, we will get back to what we started with, which is this particular issue of a 14-year-old who's just a wonderful kid but not very motivated, at least in the eyes of his parents. And uh, we'll get back to that. But let's stay with this for a minute, Linda, because... You know what? What is a? Let me play devil's advocate with you for a minute, Linda. What is a? What does a grandparent do if he just sees some glaring things that his his child, son or daughter, should know about raising those grandkids of his? And and or what is a? What is a? What does a young mom do if she has a mother who? constantly seems critical of how she, or, or even more frightening sometimes, let's say a mother-in-law who just seems to always be critical of the way she disciplines, of the way she um, tries to motivate her kids, of her personal habits around the home. What, what if you've got a mother-in-law or a mother that just you can never satisfy her? She always has a better way than you do. What, what's a family to do? You know, we get this almost after every speech, especially at women's conferences and so on. It's amazing how often this happens, even though, you know, most families are great. And um, and I do have to say in preface that this family that we're talking about, they're wonderful parents, absolutely wonderful parents, and we'll get back to that. But, you know, a lot of wonderful parents are getting advice that they don't want from from their parents or in-laws because it's not solicited and because the world has changed since they were parents and they know their kids a whole lot better than their parents do and so they are kind of sticking their nose in business that isn't theirs at this point. However, if you see something that's really glaring, I know your answer to this, Richard. You have to tell them how you feel gently and then tell them to take it or leave it, but just a little heads up. Well, but I think there's even a, uh, there's even a more critical step that applies in almost every case, and that is have a little meeting. Go to dinner, the four of you. I'm talking about maybe the two parents and the two grandparents, or whatever the configuration is, and have a really great adult discussion of... And st- the starting point, of course, is look... We all love Billy, or we all love Susie, and and you know, she's your daughter, and she's our granddaughter, and and we love her, and we understand that this is and the the cool thing about it, this meeting is either party can initiate. If it's the grandparents saying, 
they ought to say, look, you're the parent, and we don't want to do anything that's against your wishes, but we do want to help. What do you think we can help with? And if it's the parent, which it often is, saying, look, dad and mom, these are my kids. I appreciate you. I appreciate that you love them, but can we get on the same page here in terms of what our goals are with these kids and how you can help and how you might not help if you do things we don't ask you for? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, there are some times when a parent would say, you know, we have told them this over and over and over again, and they are not getting it, but maybe if you tell them, uh, we have another grandchild who's dealing with these grade issues right now. He's 12, and uh, he is getting not just uh, bad grades, really terrible grades. And, you know, finally his mom said to us, you know, could you have a chat with this child? Because we have tried everything. Can you motivate him? We can't seem to motivate him. And so it, I think that has been helpful because they ask for the advice. If they're not asking for the advice, then it's a different story. So you get the idea. It comes back like so many things in families to good communication between generations. And it's not just the parent-child generation, it's the parent-grandparent generation. And so let's have you think about that for a moment or two. Let's take a little break and then we'll come back to our original case study about motivating a 14-year-old. Well, here we are again, Richard and Linda Iyer. Iyer is on the road talking about one of the very most interesting and perplexing challenges, namely a 13 or 14-year-old's brain and why (laughs) it is so hard sometimes to motivate them. Now, we should start off by saying if you've got a 13 or 14-year-old who's not as motivated as you wish, Just be glad that's the problem you have because a motivation problem is a lot better problem to have than a rebellion problem. Sometimes they go together, I know. But a kid who just can't quite measure up to his potential is not the worst problem in the world. Uh, Exactly. I mean, a lot of parents are so concerned about that, but we talk to so many parents with teenagers who are rebellious, disrespectful, you know, so many things that are worse. And so we have been mentioning this to his parents because this child is so adorable. We adore this kid. And yet he is a little bit less mature than some of the kids his age. But then, as you know, Richard, uh, sometimes those less mature kids uh, fly past, you know, in the next two or three years. He could fly past his friends in maturity level. It's just a matter of how that brain is developing and how those synapses are connecting. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And um, he's a freshman, this boy, in, in high school. And, of course, his parents, as would normally be the case, are worried about, well, is he going to get into college if he doesn't? improve those grades. Well, in this case, his grades are pretty good, but but we've run into a lot of parents who are like, oh my goodness, if he doesn't get his act together, he'll never get into a college. Now, of course, that's true if it goes on too long, but you don't have to quite push the big panic button at age 13 or 14. Uh, if, If they're 16 and they're still really 
unmotivated or even 15, that may be the time to panic a little bit. But uh, I think, Linda, you ought to go a little further with your studies on on the, the, the development of a teenage brain. Because, look, if you're fighting, uh, you're fighting a losing battle if you're trying to teach a child something that his brain is physically or physiologically or mentally incapable of learning. Yeah, it's true. I just read an article in National Geographic, which was just fascinating. The writer was a scientist who was working on the brain at the time, but she said she had a 15-year-old son who, no, he had to be 16 because he was driving, 16-year-old son who got picked up on the freeway going 113 miles an hour. And honestly, they called from the police station. She said she died. She went down there and thought, said, what were you thinking to go that fast? He said, well, you know, I was just trying this out. He said, well, you know, what could have happened? You could have killed somebody. You could have killed yourself. You weren't even thinking. You weren't focusing on what was going on. He said, no, Mom, I was totally focusing. I was going so fast that I was focusing more than I ever have been when I was driving. (laughs) Well, that's kind of beside the point. But that's how he internalized that, like, okay, I'm going really fast, but I am really careful because I am really concentrating. I mean, would we think of that as an adult? No, but that's the way his brain processed that. So we have to give him a break a little bit as these brains are catching up with their bodies because it is a whole new deal. and, And the other thing is, here's what we have to remember, parents, when we're trying to motivate our kids of any age, really. Uh, some kinds of artificial motivation, and, and they're not bad. We don't, you know, rewards and, and sometimes punishments and taking away privileges and all those things. It's not that they're the most terrible thing in the world, but we should all recognize those are not permanent solutions because you take over ownership of that kid's situation. The minute you become the one who imposes the penalty or takes away one of their favorite things or tries to motivate them by some really artificial reward. Or even by grounding them. Yeah. You've got to remember that you, you may change their behavior, but you're doing it by manipulating it, and you're doing it by being the manager rather than the consultant. And at some point, and of course the sooner the point is the better, that child needs to start feeling ownership ownership of his grades, ownership of his goals, ownership of his room that he leaves messy and so on. And getting that ownership to him is not an easy process. It takes time. It takes a lot of reasoning. It takes going on long drives and talking about what it takes to get into college and what he needs to think about doing now. And all those things sometimes feel like a waste of time, but they are the beginning of the process that has to happen if that child is going to have internal self-motivation, which is what we all want, because we've got to remember the goal of a parent is to work themselves out of a job. Yes, and we have always felt that it's really important to keep the motivation positive rather than negative. In other words, uh, you know, don't when when your child does something outrageous, don't just say, you know, you are grounded for the rest of your life, which I have heard a lot of parents say that, actually. And, uh, you know, what you need to do is think of the positive side as much as you can rather than taking away something they love or whether it's, um, you know, punishing them in, in certain ways, whether it's grounding or whatever. Think of the positive if you can because... 
um, you know, that's what kids really respond to. And, and we always say, well, somebody says, when we say that, somebody inevitably says, well, that's bribing them, though. That's bribing them. Well, it's a manipulation for the positive rather than the negative. And we all kind of work on bribes, right? I mean, we all work on rewards and praise and so on. And so if you can think of a positive way to say, if you can do this, and you have to sit down with them, carefully work it out. And I know that sometimes that doesn't register very well in a 14-year-old brain, but carefully work out what you expect. And uh, actually, this mom said, you know, part of this is our fault because we didn't tell him exactly what he had to do in order to get the grades that he wants to get because now it's getting a little harder. And so what he needs to do is go and talk to the teacher. Well, that's not easy for a 14-year-old either. And so working that out is is important. I mean, that, that would be so easy for some kids. For some kids, it would just be mortifying to go talk to a teacher. But it is so important to develop the relationships with a teacher and say, you know, I didn't do as well as I thought. What can I do? Just go through it. And this darling boy said, well, I tried. I stood there, and he was talking to somebody else, and I didn't want to interrupt him. And you can feel that. I, I can still remember being 14 in, in a little bit, but remembering being shy and not wanting to interrupt people and so on. And so well, I think we need to sympathize with that. Well, and I think, uh, you know, again, a lot of parents that we work with say, Hey, I understand the concept of ownership. I understand that the ultimate goal is to get this kid to feel ownership of his own grades and ownership of his own choices and so on. But how in the world do we do I get there? And and again, the best the best answer we can give is not a simple one. It's to to put in place what we call this family economy. Many of you have heard us talk about this before, but it's a fairly I'm not going to say complex system because it's really not complicated, but it, it takes some time and it involves kids doing a lot of work around the house. It involves them buying their own clothes, their own toys as early as age eight. And, and we think probably the best thing that parents can do when they have kids who are pre-adolescents down to about seven or eight years old is to begin creating their own family economy and for guidelines we invite you to go to the free website valuesparenting.com and there's actually a click there called the family economy and by by thinking about a way to motivate kids with perhaps not totally natural consequences but as close as you can get to them where you have things they do they get paid according to what they do they have their own money they now buy their own stuff these are concrete positive steps toward ownership and believe it or not they translate over into a feeling of ownership of grades and ownership of choices and ownership of goals in other words you start with ownership of physical things and you you morph it over time in your family into feelings of ownership of other things and then you're where you want to be because then you can start praising your kids for the pride of ownership that they're showing and for motivating themselves and once you get even a little kernel of that growing and you're able to start giving heaping the praise on for every little thing they do that's self-motivated that's like the water and the fertilizer that just makes that it's like a discovery. Think, think about a kid. In, in his brain, if he, does, if he sort of thinks it through and does it himself, makes the right choice, 
gets works hard to get his grade up in English or whatever. And if you're the kind of parent who's saying, "Wow, I just admire you so much," son. Now, now let's say it starts with them something very small. Let's say I'm just pulling it out of the air here, but let's say a kid says, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, go with my friend tonight because I have a test tomorrow and I really think I better stay and study it. And let's say he says that on his own. Man, oh man, if you're the parent, you want to almost throw a party for that kid. I mean, you want to say to him, that is so fantastic that uh, at your age that you can make a decision like that and that you know enough about how important that test is that you'd give up. Not a lot of kids your age could do that, to give up something that they really want to do. That is fantastic. And now you're into this positive pattern. It's so wonderful, son, that you're taking pride in your own grades or in anything. I mean, if he takes pride in his appearance, if he takes pride in putting his shirt away for the first time in his life, he's never done it before, whatever that little thing is, that little ray of positive behavior, you now are in a position as a parent to praise to high heaven that action, and then it will begin to replicate itself. And if you really want to know more about this ownership concept, and I have to say that we've been teaching seminars for a lot of years, and it just occurred to us in the last two or three years that the real key to giving kids responsibility and having them come through with their commitments and so on is just um, all a matter of ownership. So we have put that in our latest book called The Entitlement Trap. In fact, most of the chapters are ownership of choices, ownership of money, ownership of, and so on and so on. And so it just hits that nail on the head over and over and over again because we've realized that really is the key to motivate these kids. And, you know, it's not always perfect because brains aren't perfect and they aren't perfectly formed and so on. But if if you have that in your mind as a parent, I think it makes a huge difference. Well, and by the way, that's another, since we're in the mode of websites here, in addition to valuesparenting.com, which is just one big long word strung together, values with an S, and then parenting, also go to entitlement trap. Dot com. People say, why do you call it a trap? Well, it's pretty obvious if you're a parent, if you think about it. Once they start, see, entitlement's the opposite of everything we're talking about here. Entitlement is, why should I work for it? I'm entitled. And man, once that gets a hold of a kid, it really is a trap. So keep those two websites in mind, entitlementtrap.com. But back to the point, I just think, you know, I mean, again, uh, with this wonderful daughter, who's I, I, I got to tell you, she and her husband, if you compared them and the kind of parents they are with what we were like at their age, they're, oh, man, way they're far ahead. hands down. But I so. also have to say before we finish that they are coming from different families, and that's yeah, another that's right. thing that's in the mix because her husband handled her husband's family handled that a little different than we did as far as the motivation thing and so on and as far as uh, how much to get mad and all that stuff and so it really is interesting that you're combining these cultures which that's a fabulous culture too and there's more than one right way to do things in parenting which we've found through our in-laws thank you thank you very much for them but it is so important to remember that you're working with cultures other than your own, and you have to adapt to that. Well, and it's kind of, uh, maybe this is a good sort of a wrap-up thought, Linda. It's a little like, 
you know, not only are there more than one right way to do things, there, there's more than one plan that works, but the goal is always the same, and the goal is to get kids to feel ownership of their own stuff and their own goals. May we all, in our own way, work toward that noble end, and we will see you next week on Ayers on the Road.